dial star 611 for assistance as your cellular phone is not authorized for use at this time. Pour de l'assistance, veuillez composer étoile 611. Vous n'avez pas le... Hello, podcast listener. Everything around you that you call life was made by people that were no smarter than you. And you can change it. You can influence it. You can build your own things that other people can use. The App Guy Podcasts, straight from your host, Paul the App Guy, sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. And now, Paul the App Guy. So welcome to the App Guy podcast. I'm Paul Kemp, your host, the founder of OneMob. And today I'm just thrilled to introduce our guest. He is Joe Conway, and he is the author of The Big Nerd Ranch Guide, edition one, two, and three. And he's also the owner and founder of a company called Stable Kernel, which you should check out at www.stablekernel.com. And I'll include the the link there in, in the show notes. Uh, he's the lead developer there, and we've got a, a fascinating story and app journey that we can talk to Joe about. So, Joe, you know, that's just a little taste of uh, who you are. We'd love to, to hear your app journey and a little bit about your business as well. Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me, obviously. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to interview and, and help out folks that are in this community. Uh, my app journey has been, I, I wouldn't call it boring, but it's been pretty standard, you know? I started out trying to be a game programmer. I thought that was going to be cool. That was, that was not a great decision. And uh, as part of that, I was programming on uh, Mac OS 9, trying to do 3D and, and trying to start some sort of game. Didn't really, didn't really work out. Funny story about that, interestingly enough, Mac OS 9 on the iMac back in the day, if you ever did something wrong programmatically, you accessed a bad pointer, for example, it would, it would crash the entire operating system when you first start out programming. The only way you can restart the computer is if you put a pin into the pinhole on that computer. So that's how I got my start programming, and um, that was rather unfortunate. But over time, got a little bit better at it, went to school for it, started working at the Big Nerd Ranch, was doing macOS development because it was before the iPhone came out. When the iPhone came out, I was sort of put in charge of doing the iOS stuff because no one really thought it was going to be that big of a deal, to be honest with you. And, and I was the new guy, so it's just like, yeah, let's give it to him. It'll be fine. You know, if this turns out to be something, we'll take over when he's done. That is great. And you kind of mentioned uh, in there that you were uh, working on the iPhone when it first came out. Were you in the initial beta then when uh, the SDK came out? Yeah, actually, we... Um, at Bigner Ranch, we were going to teach a course about it. One of the bummer parts about that is that I didn't really have an opportunity to write an application when iOS first came out and kind of hit that first initial gold rush and, and not really have anything of value, right? But I did write a book about it at the time, and it did turn into that class. And the class was ready while it was still in beta. And you couldn't talk about it while it was in beta, right? We were all under that NDA that you signed up for. But one of the things in the NDA was that, listen, you can talk about it with your employees or people that employ you or contractors or anything like that. So we decided to go ahead and teach the first course about iOS programming before the NDA was lifted. And we hired every single one of the people in our class for $1. We're going to pay $1 to work that week for the company. And that made it okay for us to to teach them and talk about that stuff. Probably would have never held up in court, but, you know, I think it worked out. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty intuitive there. Uh, did you remember, what was the first thing you started teaching? Uh, you know, we really start 
with the concept of model view controller. I think that's really the fundamental thing that you have to understand because it's easy to, to open up an IDE and a programming and kind of look at all the fun stuff and say, oh, I want to put that together and I'll put this together. But really you have to understand the foundation of where this comes from and how, and how to create the applications on this platform and that's model view controller. You know, Joe, I mean, it's, you were there when it first came out, the, uh, the SDK, and what kind of drove you to concentrate on uh, teaching people about, about it? What, what inspired you to do that? Well, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say it was sort of my job that I kind of had to do. I mean, that was obviously a big component. But a lot of it was that it was, it was something kind of new and interesting, and it was something I did not understand at all. I mean, we're talking about teaching this class in September of what, what would have been, 08? It was right before, yeah, around that time. And starting the class from the you know, a little bit before the beta came out. That's when we started actually working on it. And I don't really remember what that timeline was, but I remember thinking in my head, this is, this is how naive I was. I remember thinking in my head, program for the iPhone? How do you type in the code on the iPhone? That seems really silly. So really interesting because it was something that I had never considered. I, I had never thought was something, you know, possible. So cool. So I think that's really what kind of led towards it. That's why I at least embraced it. You know, that's really, you're, you're our spotlight guest today. So we'd, we want to get to know your journey, your app journey, because I think it will inspire uh, others, you know, to perhaps follow some uh, of the similar successes that you've had. But before we talk about successes in your app career, perhaps you could take a moment to think about a failure and what you learned from that failure and how you moved on. In the beginning, see, you got to think, the book is the, really the thing that I, that I would say is the biggest thing that people know about, right? But that book was such a long process. And at the end of the day, the book has been a success. But the thing about how we wrote that book is that we wrote it internally first. I say we. I wrote it internally first, and we went to teach it at one of our courses. And then, based on feedback from that course, I would improve it. And then we teach it again in another course, and so on and so on. And by the time it actually made it to bookshelves, it, you know, it had been vetted by so many people, and it was, and it was great, right? So you got to think. We're teaching in this class you know, once every two weeks, once every three weeks, maybe. And I'm going in with a book that I've been working on. It, it was a failure every single one of those times. It, it, it was someone pointing out, like, why are, you, why are you trying to teach us this way of doing it when this way is so much better? But I'm not going to count that as a failure. I'm going to count that as learning, right? I mean, I think that's sort of what it is. I don't think I've ever failed simply because you continue after a failure. It's, if you stop, then you failed. Uh, so, so what I'm learning from that is that it, it, it is good to get feedback on the projects that you're working on and to, to actually use that constructive criticism and, you know, as, as a way of improving the product. Well, it was, it was very rarely... I, well, not, I'm lying. Some of it was constructive. Some of it was just kind of like, are you serious? What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no, for the most part, people are really good sports about it. But yes, yeah, I think... In any, in any situation, especially if, if you're discussing something that, I mean, you think about iOS programming, it's so deep, right? To come out and say, I know everything off the bat, here, learn from me, is sort of rude almost, right? People are going to have things that they can bring to the table and tell you about just based on their experiences. And, and so I guess the book gave you credibility. Perhaps you can talk us through your app journey after you published the book and, and you were running these courses. What, what happened to you then? What, what inspired you to to almost set up your own company. Yeah, so, I mean, the first book really was just sort of, it, it kind of caught on, people liked it, there wasn't that good of a resource out there for it, and a lot of that drove people to come to the Bigger Ranch 
and, and to either take a class or do consulting. And that sort of grew that company. And after a certain time, some things with Bigner Ranch I wasn't liking. Uh, so I left to start my own company because I had seen how the consulting company was run. Uh, I thought, hey, maybe I could do a little bit better. And uh, that was, I mean, that was, that was really it, I suppose. I guess it usually sounds more glamorous when people talk about starting a company. I, I don't know. I don't think I'm one of those people. I think <laughs> I think I was just kind of like, oh, let's do it. Well, you know, the fact that you started your own company is in itself quite a scary proposition for people. I mean, I have also been like you, well, salaried, having have a steady job, and, and then what was it like for you? leaving that salary behind and, and, and having to make it on your own. Can you remember how you felt? Because I think that's important to, to people out there who are considering the same thing. It was, uh, it's, it was very terrifying. You know, I, I was, ju- was going to get married. I got married in October, and I left my company to start Stable Kernel in, uh, in May. So I was getting married, which is an expensive process. I was getting married about five months from then. We got two rescue dogs. Got to make sure that they're okay. I was about to turn 30. We just bought a house. I was like, all right, if there's any worse time to do this, it's right now. So let's do it. <laughs> uh, but my, my wife is such a supportive person. And she was just like, I absolutely agree. And we kind of looked at it and we said, you know what? I have this skill that happens to be in demand. I hope that I'm a good enough person to, to be a good boss and gosh, let's do it. No, I think that's so important because having support behind you as well, uh, when you're making that switch from being in a job to running your own app development company it is really a big step and a, a big, I mean, certainly for me, I wouldn't be able to do it without my support of my wife. She, she's the one that also works and keeps a, a steady income and that helps me have you know, a, a kind of fluctuated up and down sort of income and uh, do what I really enjoy doing. So I think anyone listening can, you know, perhaps take inspiration from your journey, the fact that you did it at the worst time of your life. You know, you've taken on a mortgage. <laughs> uh, well, the, wor- the worst time relatively, right? I, I mean, my life, it, the people have much worse lives. I don't want to pretend it was the worst time, but it was, a, it was a difficult time to do it, sure. Well, the fact that you're getting married, I mean, that's a pretty stressful time anyway. I can remember, the, you know, the year that I was getting married and it was uh, something that was quite, quite a top of your agenda most of the year. And so, um, you know, to kind of mix with the fact that you were leaving a job and starting your own company is, is pretty inspirational to me. But I think there's more to be said, that, and, you, and you were hinting on it there for a moment, about just that sort of support. And I think, you know, you look around, and once again, as a consultant, you see a lot of folks come in, they have an idea, they want to make it happen, they're a startup, all that kind of stuff. You see a lot of folks come in and, and they want to get rich because that's how they're gonna. That's you know that's how they're gonna find the right girl or something like that. They're gonna find the right friends or that's gonna make them who they are. And really, if you look at it, it's you know it's the people who are around you now. It's the people that support you now and, and finding those things that are really gonna vault you to success. And you know I'm very thankful for those sort of, sort of people. So this is really interesting to me, and I think it'll certainly be interesting to the audience in that when you start a company. Uh, you know, you go from basically working for a boss, uh, some people don't even like their bosses, and then you migrate to, you know, this wonderful kind of freedom. How, how, what Can you remember that first six months when you first set up your business? How did you focus what you were doing? How did you go about getting clients, getting paid? What, what was your strategy? Yeah, so, well, I mean, if, if, if someone's reason for, for starting their own company is because they don't want a boss, I, I would very strongly suggest that that's, that not be your reason because you end up having a lot more bosses. 
your clients or your bosses, uh, your employees or really your bosses, you know, you really, you have a lot more responsibility and you have a lot, you know, you do have a choice about the way the company goes and, and you do get a say in that, but you're still sort of, you know, handicapped by this is what the world's like. But it, I mean, it was interesting at first. I was smart enough to lock down a client before I left. So I had that ready to go and it's just a matter of pulling down the trigger. So I had the first client and, you know, obviously the the book was such a great help because I'm not just some random guy starting a company. I do have this calling card. That was exceptionally helpful. So getting that first client wasn't as scary as it needed to be, but it, it still was kind of scary because there's that time period before you get paid, right? Companies are slow to pay. You invoice them after a month, they pay you a month later. You know, you have to make that whole cash flow thing work. I think the biggest thing was just, just you completely have to change the way you run your finances personally. There's not a paycheck coming at the end of every month. There just isn't one. So you have to really consider that. That's great advice. Yeah, certainly I, I remember uh, I actually went from uh, a six-figure salary working in the city of London to nothing. And yeah, you basically have to make a lifestyle choice. I mean, you're following your dream, you're following your passion, but you, you, know, you can't just kind of go to um, the pub every night or um, you know the kind of lifestyle that you had when you had this check at the end of the at the end of the month. So that's certainly good advice. And I would say to anyone who's thinking of making the switch to to kind of look at your expenses and try to kind of get those down as low as possible because that's the one thing you have in your in your control. Uh, clients paying you on time is, is something out of your control, perhaps. And let's move on to perhaps some apps that you've been involved with. What, what's the most enjoyable app that you can remember working on? I think we're actually working on one right now. And the unfortunate part is I can't tell you what it is. But a couple former Apple employees uh, have what I consider to be a good idea. There are no great ideas, but theirs is a good idea. And they have the right people in place to pull it off. And we're working on it right now. And we're really sort of um, pushing the limits graphically in a lot of certain things, in a lot of uh, parts of the application. We're, we're doing things that I think that are for a good cause as well. It, it has to do with, um, with education and bringing education towards uh, to kids who may not necessarily get an opportunity to college is, is the premise of the application. But that application excites me. And we'll work on it right now. It's going to be a bit before it's done. But uh, that's the one I'm really excited about right now. So we interviewed a few days ago uh, someone from Toka Boca, and he was that, that, that's a company that's uh, involved in applications for kids. Uh, do, do you have any suggestions for anyone writing apps for kids in terms of uh, what, what the best way of getting paid via the app? Uh, is it good to do in-app purchases? Is it better to build up a brand and then build other apps around that kids app. What do you think would be the best way of going about the kids market? Well, to be honest, as a consultant, the marketing part of it, I wouldn't want to lead anyone down the wrong path and say I know anything about that. What I will tell you, though, is my father recently had uh, two more children, and they're, and they're young. And one day, one of them rang up a $300 bill on some in-app purchases, buying some sort of coin or something like that. And I think if that's the way that you approach things to scam children out of, out of money, <laughs> maybe it's probably, you know, for the best that you don't write the application. You know, I think we worked on an application a, a long time ago that uh, it did something where a kid could, they would create a story. Uh, they would, they would take them, they would, a story, you know, like a storybook, and there'd be eight or nine pages and have part of a story, and they were allowed to draw on that, right? Um, 
they're allowed to draw the pictures for each one of those pages. And then if they wanted, they could have their parents go and, and purchase that as a book. It would be shipped to their house. I thought that was really neat. I think that's a pretty cool thing, allowing them to be creative um, without trying to you know, nickel and dime them or scam them off of something. I think, you know, uh, to be honest, my opinion doesn't matter too much, but I think if you're going to do something with kids, at least be positive and, and, and try and do something better for them. How do you, I mean, you work with a lot of good clients. It sounds like you're getting involved in a lot of good projects. Certainly, you just mentioned uh, about the Apple in insiders what what how do you control your workflow how do you say no to certain projects and what, what sort of criteria is that because i think many of us app developers perhaps do we do have busy lives and we perhaps sometimes go down the wrong path you know working for clients that we don't like what would your advice picking and choosing your clients and the projects that you're going to work on yeah i mean i think about front especially when you're first starting a company if there's nothing morally questionable about the people that you're working with, maybe maybe it's just a, a tough project and they're, they're kind of bland, you kind of have to take it, right? At the end of the day, you're not going to necessarily like what you're doing up front, especially as a consultant. It's just the way it is. Um, but I think that you do have to be honest with people. When they come to you with an idea and a wad of cash and they say, I want to do this, and you know it's not going to work. You know it's not going to work either because that you know it's already been done 10 times over and it would be too difficult to get into it and they've never even heard of these other apps that do it um, or simply because it's it's probably just a really stupid idea right you do have to be honest and not take their money and and write something knowing that it's going to fail um, but other than that yeah you don't really get to be that choosy you know I mean it, it, there's there's certain signs that you need that you need to look for like for example if they send you an email, at two o'clock in the morning, uh, and then start calling you at two o'clock in the morning. That's that's not a good relationship. And if they're not willing to build that boundary with you, you need to you need to cut that short, even no matter what the money is. But for the most part, you kind of as a consultant, you just kind of got to take it, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know the other thing as well, which I think is challenging, and what we do, especially if you um, do build apps for others, is. Uh, you know, how do you work and, uh, with regards to their expectations? You know, because people do get wildly enthusiastic when it comes to oh, yeah. apps. So, uh, how do how do you work with those clients to to manage those expectations and to perhaps bring them down a notch or two when they get super excited? Now, when so when they get super excited about things, uh, you need to be excited with them. I feel like because you're on their team, right? But when it comes to actually doing things, you do need to steer them down the path of, this is how work gets done, okay? So usually it's good to put the ball in their court. And one of the ways that you can do that is you can use a project management tool, like a Pivotal Tracker is what we actually use at our company. And Pivotal Tracker is just a way of tracking, here's all the features we're gonna implement. Uh, you can mark them when they're done and they can get accepted or rejected. And here's a bug that we need to work on. It just keeps track of the workflow. And when they start throwing crazy ideas at you, you start throwing crazy ideas right back at them. And then you say at the end of it, now go put the ones that you're really excited about into Pivotal Tracker and they won't do it. And then they'll forget about it. And then the next day it comes around, they're back to thinking about business. So it's, it's really just, you know, it's fun to have those fantasies. Yeah, that sounds awful. It's fun to sound like, you know, but it's fun to have the sort of those conversations about, oh, wouldn't it be so cool if, but you always have to guide them back to the fact that this is real life. Uh, we have a lot of things that aren't so sexy that we have to do to even get to the point where we consider doing what you're talking about right now. So let's focus on those. And many of our projects are reliant on the clients, you know, especially when it comes to images and uh you know, as you said, you use something called Pivotal Tracker, which I'll, I'll make a note of. But as you, how, what sort of stuff do you build into your contract 
to with working with the client what, what sort of things do you push back on the client and say look you know these are the things we expect from you when building an app for example uh, you know getting the a- images to us at a certain time length or what, what can you talk us through the things that you expect a client to kind of deliver on Right. And, and there's usually, there's typically three pieces that go into the application. You have, you know, the actual code for the application that you are writing. That's your part of it. Then you have what the designer has done, which includes most likely doing the layout and mock-ups, as well as providing you for the image resources that you would need to actually put those in the application. And then the other third big component is whoever's writing the web services. Now, now if you can be the one writing the web services, that's awesome. But usually, it's you're already hooking into some company's existing set of web services. So there are all those things that come into play. And really, you end up having to be a manager as well. And you need to be able to say things like, I need this right now. And there should be, a no, there should be no apologies for you wanting them to do the work so that you can do your work because they're paying you for it. So a lot of times, emails with clients are, are very straight to the point. I need X, Y, and Z. And there isn't anything, there's no, I'm sorry to bother you, there's no, please get that to me, simply, these are the things I need. And I think they actually appreciate that more than anything else, because they don't have to read that much. But within, as far as the contracts go, the contracts, a lot of the times, especially in a fixed bid contract, which is basically you say, you want this, these things done, and you're going to pay me X number of dollars for it, and if it takes me five years to do it, I lose that much money. Um, if it takes me 20 minutes to do it, I gain that much money, right? So there's that type of contract. When you write that type of contract, you need to be very specific about the features that you put into that contract. You need to lay them out exactly. You need to say things like, if you know this web service is not completed, we are not liable for doing this sort of thing, right? Um, so most, I've just never really felt though that clients are out to screw you. I feel like they, you know, they're just people. They want to do something great. They're interested in what they're doing. They're so excited. Uh, they're not going to bust your balls over something like that. You know, all the risks that we take on board when we take a client, uh, the risks are, you know, we don't get paid or yeah. uh, we do a significant amount of work and they, they change their mind. Or, or even the biggest risk um, I've faced uh, with a couple of apps is the rejection from Apple in the App Store. How do you deal with those risks in your business? Well, the not getting paid part, just get a good lawyer. My lawyer's awesome. I, I don't worry about anything. Um, but in terms of getting rejected, for, and by the way, getting a good lawyer, you don't have to pay them to get them a good, I don't know if that's common knowledge, but you don't, you maybe give them a retainer of something small, but for the most part, you only pay them when they actually do something. Uh, so if anyone's scamming you for money, don't do that. But with getting rejected from Apple, as much talk and as much sort of, um, sensationalist information that's out there about getting rejected from Apple, it doesn't really happen very often. You know, if, if you're doing something, it's pretty clear whether or not, based on the rules that they have, it's pretty clear whether or not it's something that is borderline rejectable. And if your whole premise to an application is something that's borderline rejectable, that doesn't seem like a good investment. You know, it doesn't seem like a good idea to sink a lot of time into something where the main feature is this thing that ah, may not work out for you, right? Rejections that I've seen before are tiny things. Gosh, I can't even, I can't even think of one right now. Like, uh, so, so you've never had an app rejected fully and you've not managed to get through no, it? No, I've never had an app rejected fully. They've asked us to change a quick thing here and there. Um, I think one time we got rejected because within the legal uh, text, we had a link that went back to this company's website and on that company's website, you could purchase the items that you could also purchase in the app. 
uh, and that would be bypassing in-app purchases in some completely awkward way. But they said, just go ahead and remove the link and resubmit it, and they're cool about it. That, that's good. That's the one thing I can probably beat you on then. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, the, the reason I've had apps rejected is they didn't like uh, some of the, the, the the products being sold. Um, I do e-commerce apps, and yeah. So, but it, I guess then you go into this with the view that it's a hundred percent chance of getting through. And if yeah, you probably don't even write that into the contract. Yeah, actually, yeah, now that now that I think about it, now that you mentioned that, I probably should. But uh, I think uh, from the outset, if it was something that I thought was potential for not being accepted, just the basis of it, I think I'd have to tell that person, you know. Here's what the rules are. If you want to take the risk, I understand that. Yeah, because, you know, clients clearly not very clued up with the process of app building or the app submission process. Well, right. I mean, as part of consulting, you sort of have to know the entire world, right? You have to know the review process stuff. You have to know what's, what's currently in the most useful libraries to use for whatever this happens to be, right? You have to keep up on it, right? It's like being a doctor, Right? You can't just go to med school in 1955 and still be a doctor in 2013. There's a lot of things that change. You've got to keep up to date on it. And that's what they're buying as part of that, not just the code, but you as a resource. And normally the person appointing you from a client, especially the clients you kind of mentioned, Pearson, the big company, and others, they're not the people that you'll be working with on a day-to-day basis on the app. Do you insist that you have a point of contact that is an internal resource from your clients? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, I've never insisted it simply because they've always insisted it. And you do need that project manager on their side in a lot of cases. And it's tough for, especially for, you know, startups come in. Startups don't have a project manager. They just got a bright-eyed person that is really interested in doing this thing and they don't necessarily understand the process. That's actually more difficult to work with. But those bigger companies, especially in small and medium-sized companies, they'll definitely have at least one person that is sort of over everyone that's on the application. And just in regards to getting paid again, I think that's such an important part for anyone listening is, is the, the process of getting paid. Do you, do you charge an upfront fee? And if so, what sort of percentage are you asking your clients to pay up front? Between 25 and 50%. And it, it doesn't really matter what the, the dollar total is. It's, it's going to be big. They need to be serious about it. So it's even tougher, I think, if you're getting started. If, if clients are reluctant to pay the upfront fee then you know that perhaps it's not the right client to be working with. Mid-sized clients are the best. Your 50 to 200 com- or people companies are the, are the greatest. How do you go about attracting clients? I'm guessing a lot of it's from the reputation that you've had over the years. And, but, but what's your marketing strategy? Do you actually go out and physically mark, market to these people? So I don't really do... I mean, you know, I keep my blog posts up. Uh, the book, obviously, was a huge help. I don't see a lot of value in doing your traditional marketing. Um, you know, you start working with someone at this one company, you do a good job for them, they move to another company because they made, you know, an upwards move to, to VP at this other company. Hell, that other company needs an application. Who's the first person they call? The guy that did a good job for them. So there's every single client I've had has been through word of mouth and, and almost just, you know, one or two levels away of, of knowing someone. And... I think those are the best clients to have, right? They've been vetted already for you. Yeah, how do you promote the portfolio that you're working on? I think having it on your website, which I don't currently. I'm still in the process of putting that together. I'm a terrible um, HTML JavaScript programmer, by the way, so it takes me a little bit of time. Um, Having that portfolio, asking for permission, of course, first from the companies and saying, hey, you know, I'm really proud of the work that we did on your application, and, and we'd like to 
you know, tell people that we worked on it with you. Uh, that's always very positive. In terms of putting your mark onto uh, that application, you know, that application in the wild, that's, that's probably never going to fly in a lot of cases. I remember one time, maybe, maybe four years ago, I was writing an application, uh, the, that new Wolverine movie was coming out, and uh, they wanted to do an application. It was just, it was just a promotional piece. And I can't stand applications like that because there's no substance and no challenges. It's just throw these images in there and, and we'll write you a check. It's like, all right, whatever. But um, <clears throat> so I tried to hide my name at the bottom of a scroll view so that only, only if you lifted the scroll view way too far past where it was supposed to go, you would just barely see it at the bottom. Now they caught that. They did not like that one bit. No. <laughs> so... So that doesn't, you typically white label it. They're not going to allow you to do that in their application. A lot of times, because, you know, iOS applications are such a branded experience these days, right? They're so, every little pixel is, is so important. Uh, you're just not going to get away with something like that. Well, this is all great stuff because, you know, you're there um, running a successful business and, and you've got some great clients, it sounds like. And, uh, you know, for people starting out, they're taking away a lot from this. So we've, we've got, I, before we, bring it to a conclusion what what i like to do is just uh, ask you some quick fire questions and let's, let's just kind of go through that what was what was first holding you back from moving into app development uh, to be honest i don't know if that one applies i i, I didn't uh, nothing was holding me back it was what it was interesting it was, it was ready to go you were actually one of the f first few people i think that were forced as an employee <laughs> yeah, to, to get true. into the beta so <laughs> what what a uh, pretty uh Good piece of luck, I guess that was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It truly is. That's that's a part of it as well. What's the best advice that you've ever received? Uh, hold yourself to a higher standard in everything. Code you right, the person you are, uh, morals, things like that. Yeah, be better. Be better than everyone. Can you share any one of your personal habits that you uh, tend to have on a daily basis that would help uh, with anyone writing apps? I think the first thing you need to do in the morning is to write a line of code. It's, it's easy to go into the office, maybe you had a long commute, maybe uh, you're just not a morning person, write a line of code. Just start going with that. You'll get into it really quick. Don't get your coffee, don't go on Reddit, don't go on Hacker News, write a line of code. Do you have any internet resources that you're in love with? You mentioned Pivotal Tracker. Are there any others that you'd, you'd suggest to? Uh, I mean, there's, there's the staples. You got Pivotal Tracker, you got GitHub, got to be on that, Stack Overflow. You can pretty much conquer the world with those three things. And Stack Overflow comes up almost time and time again on Google search uh, when you, you type in the question. Well, that's the best part. I don't think I've ever typed stackoverflow.com in my browser. <laughs> it just ended up being a Google result, right? And, you know, that's interesting. Is it, you know, you are on Stack Overflow. Is it, is it worth investing time in that by answering questions and building up your profile on there? What do you, how do you use that? I, I wish I did. One of the problems with Stack Overflow is a lot of questions need to be answered in a much grander context. And just throwing a few snippets of code at someone I don't think is the greatest. It's, it's good if you're trying to solve a quick problem. And maybe you just couldn't think of a method name or something like that. That's great. And someone helps you with that. But I think that in order to really communicate with people, I think you do have to do things like have a blog and, and be able to really go big on a topic and be able to explain it. Now, the final question I've got before we wrap things up is an interesting one because I think app developers could be at or certainly people thinking of getting into it could be at that 
point in their lives where you were when you first started out. So if you can remember, or let's, let's just imagine that you could go back and uh, sit down and have a, a dinner with your former self, the, the, the Joe Conway, just before you were getting married, um, you were just about to set up your company. What would you, that discussion, what would you say in that discussion to yourself um, of all those years? You know, I'd, I'd, I'd probably try and say, have a little bit more balance to your life, man. You know, in, in the beginning, uh, I would sleep till 10 a.m. and work till 3 a.m. And that was my schedule and it was, it was sort of the entire thing. But I think now having that balance in my life allows me to be a better programmer and a better programmer, you know, allows me to think about things more critically in, in my real life and just sort of having that. But I would have been 23 years old, 24 years old at the time, and I probably would have said, dude, shut up. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's that's the thing. (laughs) Whatever that person was, it got you to where you are now. And I think that's a really important question. Certainly um, an important answer there was the the fact that we do end up working uh, through you know, late through the night and then having broken sleep patterns. And uh, you can't think like that. You can't. So I've really enjoyed this discussion. I mean, uh, you know, from someone who's working with clients and uh, from someone who's, you know, been teaching uh, people and it's just been terrific. So before we wrap things up, Joe, there, is there anything you perhaps want to mention to the audience, uh, you know, that they, anything you've missed? And then also, uh, what, what's the best way of reaching out to you and connecting with you? Uh, for reaching out to me, uh, Twitter is usually where I kind of do all my development-related conversations. And uh, that's uh, Joe Conway, S-T-K. That's my Twitter handle. I changed it from Joe Conway B&R since I, I changed companies. And... Um, Ah, uh, gosh, I don't know. I think I think we covered a lot of ground today. Honestly, I think you're a great interviewer. So that was that was. I didn't know I was going to answer a lot of these questions until you asked in the way that you asked them. So that's awesome. No, I mean that's from from someone who's, you know, like working with clients as well, and it's just been an interesting journey because you know you've given, you've given me a lot of ideas. I've not actually using Pivotal Tracker, so I'm actually going to go and look that up right now. And yeah. Okay, Joe. Well, I mean, I've, it's terrific. Thank you very much for joining me. I've still actually got uh, three or four questions I forgot to ask you, but I will um, perhaps save that for another time, and we'd love to have you on again. Appreciate your time. So it just leaves me to say thank you very much, Joe. It's been an inspiration to me, and uh, I'll hopefully get to speak to you some other time. Sounds great. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. And if you do have any ideas on who we should interview, please send that email to info at onemob.com. That's info at onemob.com. 